And one time we were way back in there someplace. We were sitting on the edge of a, a ridge and uh, looking into a drainage. And uh, he said, let me show you how this thing works, you know. And he blew on that thing and nothing happened. And uh, I said, well, let me try mine. And uh, <laughs> I, I blew mine. And I distinctly remember this. There was a bull across the, on the other side of the rim, and you know, down through the basin up on the other side, directly across from us, probably, I don't know, three quarters of a mile away, went absolutely ballistic. And it would run up the ridge and bugle, and it would run down the ridge and bugle. And uh, it was amazing. And uh, that night, that bull came right into camp and bugled. And he was convinced that maybe it did work. <laughs> These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. So you wanted to hear about my uh, cougar story? Yeah. Well, um, it was it was in one of my favorite places. My dad and I and my grandfather and I have uh, been going to that place since I can remember. And it's uh, very hard to get to. Uh, the trail's gone now, though it's pretty it's pretty gnarly uh, spot. Um, so I was. I was kind of late in the evening uh, looking into this basin and I heard a bunch of elk bugling down there and uh, I knew I couldn't get down in there before dark. I didn't want to run them off so the next day I showed up about two hours sooner and started to go down in there thinking uh, I might be hearing some bugling and I didn't hear anything. It was quiet and that was puzzling to me and I Started walking further on down in there than I cared to without hearing anything. Didn't want to blow them out. And uh, I saw something in the grass. And it looked like a cat's ears. I thought, now that's got to be a bobcat. And so I was carrying at the time a rubber blunt. So I put a blunt on and I started walking towards it real carefully. And all of a sudden... uh, I realized it was, it was. Coming. You're just gonna blunt a bobcat for the fun of it. Yeah, I wanted to see how high it jumped. 
<laughs> and so uh, I, I realized that the thing was actually advancing towards me, and he came to the edge of the taller grass, and it was a cougar. And it was on its belly, and it started making some pretty uh, eerie noises, kind of like a couple of alley cats, a couple of house cats in the, you know, flirting season or whatever. I, it, uh, it unnerved me. I, I switched uh, my blunt out real quick, got a broadhead on there. I didn't want to shoot it, and so I just started walking backwards. I knew you didn't want to turn your back on something like that. And, you know, we, we walked backwards for quite a while. It was following, it was, it was following me right along and in, in a aggressive posture. And I came to a spot and it's getting a little evening by now, a little darkish. I came to a spot in the trail. It was a little bit rugged and I had to turn around. There was a bunch of rocks and snag or something there so i thought i better just hold it hold my position that dang thing just kept coming and it uh it stopped and uh it was tense it started uh shifting its weight from foot to foot and its tail was whipping and the end of it was recoiling and and twisting and i thought you know i feel like a robin in the yard and the house cat's about to jump on it, you know, and I thought, if I don't shoot now on a on a still shot, I don't think I could hit it when it's coming at me. And I wasn't sure but what this thing wasn't gonna start, you know, attacking me right now. So I drew back and torched one off and it hit it just right, right in the wishbone. And uh the thing just leapt in the air and did about three cartwheels and was screaming and tore off down through the brush and I could hear it rattling on poles in this thicket and I I thought I better just get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to go down there and see how good a shot I made. I didn't want any part of that. So I went home with the hair standing on the back of my neck and got to camp and told my hunting buddy uh, that I don't know if I did the right thing, but I I put an arrow in a cougar. And uh, we should go look for it in the morning and see what, what the deal was. So come morning, we went down there, and the blood trail was about six inches wide, and it went straight to the nearest cliff, which was about 200 yards away. And we peered over that, and right at the bottom, straight down, there was a cougar laying there. And so uh, we went down to the bottom there and uh, looked. And uh, the thing from the arrow entry point clear to its uh, ass was bloody, you know, except for two spots, the teats. Mm. They were cleaned off. And so we started looking around like, okay, there's kittens here somewhere probably. But at that time, since they had... uh, prevented hound hunting, you know, there was really no way to control the population and the thought of maybe getting two more was just a bonus, I thought. So we just walked away and figured that it was maybe a threefer. Yeah. That was that one. Yeah. That's, uh, you're shooting a longbow or recurve at the time? 
at that time, I was shooting a um, compound. A compound. Yeah. Yeah, that was about the time I, I switched. So about what year was that? It was 1997. Okay. Yeah, I, I took a, uh, a trip with that thing, I think maybe the next year, into a, a two, it was a two-day pack to get to the, the spot, to the camp. And with I remember, mules? Yeah. And uh, so I got into camp and uh, got my bow out. And uh, it's a pain in the ass with a, a compound because you got to take it in there in one piece. And it's it's always in the way and in harm's way, too. And pulled it out and uh, set up a little target and uh, pulled back. And when I let go, the swedged end off the cable blew off. And the only place that I knew to fix it, it was a... It was a Martin, was in Athena. <laughs> so I went to Athena. And so like two-thirds of my hunting trip was blown. I never uh, used that again after yeah. that. Yeah. Fortunately, they've gotten a lot better. But like that backcountry hunt that we went on a couple of years ago, you know, going in, into camp there, you know, we'd been riding in the dark for a few hours and... um me and the me and the pony took a little tumble, and the pony went over the top of me, and I had my bow over my back. And um, there's not a good way to pack a compound on a horse. And fortunately, my my bow was all right, and my my binos protected that my chest from getting a saddle horn punched through it. I couldn't bugle right for a couple of days, <laughs> but uh, no, I I think that for a for a sure enough backcountry hunt, having a a takedown recurve that, you know, you can pull both limbs off of, roll it up with all your arrows and have everything protected and in, inside of a pack somewhere. That's a good solution. It sure is. I've many a time uh, pulled into a meadow and heard, you know, a big bull on the edge of the other side of the meadow and dumped a pack and put that thing together and went for a little hunt. But it's a uh, nerve-wracking trying to get everything just right, string that bow, and keep the horses quiet. And <laughs> it's pretty exciting. I want to go back to that incident where you got you and the pony rolled. Uh-huh. You left out the most noteworthy thing. Your foot was stuck in the stirrup, yeah, and the horse was pulling against it. And uh, I said, you need some help? And you went, yes. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a, that's an interesting way to say, get the hell over here. I, and I, uh, I responded quickly, got that uh, horse by the halter just yeah. in time. Yeah, and you got my foot out of the stirrup because I was riding in my hunting boots like an idiot. <sighs> and, and honestly, I've been good about only wearing cowboy boots on a horse my whole life and never wearing lace up boots on a horse. Mm -hmm. And you know, that was beat into me as a kid. Mm -hmm. You don't do it. Yeah. And for folks who don't know, the reason you don't is because the bottom of a cowboy boot is slick and then it's got a gap and then a heel and that keeps your foot from sliding all the way through the stirrup. But if for some reason you do get your foot all the way through the stirrup and you're off the horse, if that horse takes off, then your boot can come off. Mm -hmm. But if you're laced up, you're probably just along for the ride. 
what people have told me you're supposed to do if you are hung up and, and a horse takes off is you're supposed to roll underneath the horse and let him step on you to pull you out of the of the stirrup or, or break the stirrup. You know, you do whatever you got to do. In that case, we were on the edge of, you know, a, a terrifically big and steep canyon. And had that horse not been good and steady and had gotten scared and took off, it could have been a real disaster. Yeah, you wouldn't have probably made it. There's so many rocks and things to get your head whacked on, you yeah. know, when a horse is running. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I always just just hook my big toe on yeah. on the uh, stirrup and I check it constantly. I always look always look down there. Okay, I'm safe. I can pop off of this thing real quick. When I was guiding back here in the in the caps, you know, we had these crappy dude horses and, you know, these these horses that just shouldn't have been on a trail, but you know they're they're cheap horses, and that's what you needed for that type of a guide outfit. And I would kick off my bottom stirrup all the time um, when we were in really steep stuff or really shaly stuff, so that if that horse did start to go, you know my bottom side was all, already free, and I could bail off on the top side of the trail and hopefully let the horse go. But I had this uh, this Appy Arab cross named biscuit i think it was rotten horse and it would not pay attention and when you'd get to a switchback it'd just keep walking and you know the trail switches back because it can no longer go forward (laughs) most of the time and uh gosh i can't i can't tell you how many times i had to bail off that horse and it'd roll down the hill three or four times and i think all right this is it this is the time that it's just gonna break every leg and and be done but it'd scramble back up somehow all wide-eyed and pay attention for another half mile or so and then do it again it's nerve-wracking yeah you add that to uh other scenarios that have nothing to do with a sleepy horse like uh a mule right that uh, reacts to some loud scratching of of shoes on a rock ledge happened to me one time in a terrible spot in the the pack horse had to jump up about a i don't know 30 inch like ledge right in the middle of the trail i mean you couldn't go up the trail without doing that and uh you know sparks and you know metal on on the rock startled the mule and so just as the horse was in its most vulnerable position you know uh, out of balance the mule jerked back and it dropped that horse back in the trail with these big rocks on both sides of it. And it was held in there with the pack boxes and like kind of spring loaded down into the trail. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, I don't know, probably a minute and a half before I got to it. And uh, it was wheezing already. Like it wasn't going to be long that this, this horse could could live in this situation so i i think i cut the cinch and oh really I, yeah and i grabbed its halter and uh, kind of went back over the top of it and pulled as hard as i could and it wriggled a little bit and it got loose and it just started head over heels just cartwheel down and it came it it came to a rest at the base of a tree. It hit the tree about two feet off the ground and fell down at the base of the tree. And its legs were both hanging out on, 
on both sides of the tree over like about a 50 foot drop off and the thing was trying to scooch around it had no idea it was sitting on the edge of a cliff <laughs> and it was trying to scooch around to get on one of his two feet whichever one he could get and uh holy smoke was that ever a, a tense moment we tied we tied its head i think and uh and pulled uh me and my buddy for all we were worth and it finally kind of rolled over and got away from the tree and saved it but that was tense have you ever um had a horse die or had to kill a horse in the Mm. back country yeah 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 i had a unfortunate experience with my dad it was a it was a real long day we'd we'd gone in to uh take an elk camp out and i was probably 10 years old and it was uh extremely cold and we went up this steep switchback trail and the mule went on the lower side of a tree out of the trail and the pack horse went around the right way and they got all twisted up around that tree and horse went down and my dad got the cinch off somehow and it either broke its halter or uh, lead rope and it did that it end over end down the hill and it really picked up speed and it, it hit the a pine tree with with like six inch limbs that were all pointing back up the hill and it knocked about half a dozen of those big limbs off mm-hmm. and uh it had head injuries we uh decided to take a different route and we distributed his pack on the other horses and we just let him uh walk behind and he kept up with us for a while it was, as I remember, probably about three in the morning, and uh, we came to this little grade, and we were like two miles from the end of the trail, and uh, it stopped, and I was in the back, and Dad said, uh, come on, whack him, you know, and he was he was being pulled by the horse in front. We tied him up after a while, and we, we realized he was going to get out, you know, be able to come out, and I was whacking on him for all his worth, and Dad was pulling on him, and he just went down on his knees and rolled off the trail, and yeah, that was his last breath. And uh, so, yeah, I've had that experience, and then up in uh, Frank Church, a uh, bunch of wolves uh, were hassling the horses, and mm. I had two fresh, two green mules that I, well, they weren't green; they were just new to me. Um, I had a mule die in the pasture just old age and my uncle gave me two mules to use on that trip and uh they were a bunch of quitters they didn't want to mother up with the bell mare that i had they just wanted to leave together what is a bell mare it's uh what keeps a bunch of mules together if you have a a mare who is familiar with the mules or the mules are familiar with the mare you can't hardly uh separate them so if you stake the mare out, then you've got the mules. And, you know, that happened. That that works 90% of the time. Because <laughs> <laughs> usually the last one you got will probably test the, the system on you. But uh, so where was, I, where was I going with this one? Uh, wolves in oh. Frank Church. Yeah, so I ha- I just decided that I'd keep one of those two mules 
tied and one I'd let graze. And I'd do that, you know, twice a day before we uh, take off. And then when we get to camp next place, you know, I'd, they'd alternate. They'd get enough to eat. But this one night, um, we had we had wolves right in the trail, right right around the camp, and uh, got out there on the meadow, and uh, that mule was was dead. Mm. Had broken its neck, is what I presume, and I would imagine that it it fought uh, against the lead rope and got its head underneath him somehow and uh, upside down. But I had tied him high and tight. That's what my dad always told me. And you're in that situation, you know, where they don't have rope to tangle in. Right. You don't want them to get a leg up uh-uh. over the top of the rope. No. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it happens. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing. What are some animals that, that when you're when you're packing, you don't want to run into on the trail? Llamas. <laughs> <laughs> Llamas. They're the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and worse than that. It's uh, backpackers that don't understand horses. Yeah. And uh, it's happened more than once. Some backpacker sees us coming and thinks he's doing us a favor by trying to get behind the nearest tree. And so the horses normally see him. But when you get halfway down the string, maybe one of the mules hasn't. Right. And all of a sudden they realize they're three feet away from this thing that's got ski poles and dangling cups and bright colors and, you know, says hi or something, you know, and that can be a real blowout. Yeah. Yeah. But the absolute worst is bees. Bees. Yeah. Bees are bad for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. That can cause a lot of chaos all at once. But, you know, llamas, you know, I'm, everybody knows that I'm, I'm critical of llamas, but there's a good reason for it. And, and that is that horses and mules are absolutely terrified of them. They are. The way they smell, the way they look, the sounds they make. Horses and mules have a really fearful reaction to that. And a lot of these trails that we're on are five inches wide, six inches wide. And off to the side might be a thousand or two thousand feet of drop. And there's no place to stop anywhere down there. Um, and if you start having these animals panic and things start breaking and they start rolling off the trail, it turns into an absolute disaster. And I honestly think that if somebody is, were to take a llama into the back country, that a horse's reaction to seeing that llama is going to be similar to if that person had instead decided to dress up in a grizzly bear suit. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone can recognize that the guy that dressed up in a grizzly bear suit is is doing something that, you know, is, is irresponsible because we know that that's going to scare these animals and, and cause a lot of problems. But for whatever reason, people think it's okay to, to do the same thing with llamas. And I just, it's unnecessary. (laughs) We have, we have such better options than a freaking llama to carry a little bit of weight into the back country. Like, just don't do that. I know it's trendy. I know it's trendy right now. There's people that do it. Please don't. Don't be one of them. I was so paranoid about it after a couple run-ins with llamas that I went and got one. Yeah. But, you know, they are such weird 
critters, you know. The horses never really got all of the the tricks, you know. Even the very last day, the day I went, tried to round that thing up and get it out of there, you know, I had it for a couple of years, it caused the biggest commotion yet. And it was it was bleating or bellering, I don't know what you call it, but it sounded like he was being boiled in oil mm-hmm. right there in the pasture. He laid down and, you know, me and everybody I could find had to practically carry it out of the pasture and put it in the horse trailer. When we got it in the horse trailer, we were talking or something, and uh, it uh, it jumped out through a about a 16 or 18 inch space between the roof and the and the back of the trailer. Just cleared cleared it. I don't know how it could have possibly done it. Hmm. They're just the weirdest thing, like half half monkey, half devil. Half sheep. (laughs) (laughs) A gal up here on the slope hired me to trim the Islamist feet when I was 14 or 15 years old. That's easy enough money. Bring some (laughs) snips out here. (laughs) I'm going to, you know, be able to go buy myself a cheeseburger and a milkshake when I'm done. And, uh, you know, it stood there nice and steady enough. and, And I picked one of its feet up and set it back down, picked it up again. Didn't seem like that big of a deal. And then I, you know, took my first snip with my little snippers and that thing jumped up in the air. And I, I think it kicked me with all four feet at the same time. <laughs> I don't doubt it. A bit. Wadded me up into a big <laughs> dust ball. And yeah, then it turned into kind of a brawl at that point. And it came out of there with its feet trimmed, but I bet you had some scrapes on you. Oh, and and that's not, like, I looked like I'd just gone through a combine <laughs> and uh, smelled like an old horse blanket or worse, but you don't want to tell people, like, well, what happened to you? It looks <laughs> bad. It's like, I, I got got by a llama. <laughs> I'm, I'm a manly man. <laughs> I, I know you didn't want to have a podcast on llamas, but I got to tell you one more thing. This crazy llama I had, it would... It would run as fast as it could straight towards a person if they'd never seen that person before and stop right at the last minute and stick his nose right on that other person's nose and stare at him. And if he liked him, he'd turn around and walk away. If he didn't, he'd spit right in their face. That's bad behavior. That's terrible behavior. How do you change it? Uh, I mean, I would kill it. I would shoot that llama. There's a lot of people yeah. that eat llama around here, and they say it's great. Really? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I've i eaten a relative to the llama in uh, in South America when I was down there fly fishing, and it tasted like bad venison, I guess. It's hmm. the way I'd describe it. But people eat all kinds of stuff that they think is good. What do you look for if if you were brand new and you had to start over and you had to buy some pack mules? What do you look for in a mule? Uh, gentleness, confidence, um, like a calm eye and, um, catchable. Mm -hmm. That's a big, that's (laughs) That's a big plus. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're going to have to catch it a bunch of times. Every time you need it, you got to catch it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the ones that love to get, uh, scratched, you know? Like scratched between the ears or in 
in the ear in the mm-hmm. big uh, uh you know it's like a big huge leaf or whatever you know inside there and uh they love that yeah and and so there's a couple that just come running to get itched yeah and then there's a couple that you've got to really work at you got to get them cornered just right or you tie a horse to a post along a fence and then you kind of work it so that they get in between that horse and and you and they can't get around the I think sometimes they duck under the rope and get out but yeah it's very frustrating when you got a <laughs> a really good mule that you just can't afford not to have but you can't catch it it's it's a pain how about size I like the just the the smaller you know I don't know what you call them they're they're the normal size you know yeah. like 14 hands something like that or just a little shorter than that those great big long lanky ones that you got to stand on a stump to pack they they are overrated and plus they're such a handful you know they're just so big and heavy and even the even the skinny looking ones you know their head probably weighs 100 pounds and if chipmunk flitters over there and it looks over to see it and you're in the way it knock you for a loop you know right i i like a, a big draft mule if it has those qualities you described earlier, you know, if you can catch them, if you can rub on them and and they like you and they're, I've I've been around some that are just big, gentle teddy bears and it is tough to pack them. You got to get that load up quite a bit higher, but I've been around some that are pretty happy to carry 180 or 200 pounds, Mm -hmm. um, even through, through the steep stuff. So they can kind of do the job of, of almost two mules yeah, but it is tough to get them packed. Mm-hmm. And whenever you have trouble on the trail, um, it's just that much more chance of getting hurt or them hurting another animal. You know, How much they're... weight do you want your mules to carry? Oh, I'm comfortable with like uh, 55 pounds on each side, and then if I'm when I have to, I put a, a light top pack on it, mm-hmm. maybe 25. Yeah, there's no sense getting them wore out or you know i mean there's probably uh, a few times when i've packed more than that but it's only out of necessity it would prevent me from getting the having to go back in and taking out one more one more load what's your uh what's your first memory of elk hmm uh with my dad and uh going hunting when i was too young to carry a gun. Yeah, we, my dad was a great hunter. And got into a lot of elk, and you know we'd we'd find them. We'd get into them. Did he bow hunt too? No, never did. So what got you into archery? Oh, um, when I was adolescent age, uh, I had a a family of boy cousins, five boys in the family. And we all had bows and arrows, and we'd shoot them. And when uh, one or two of us got to be 12 years old and get a, to, to get a hunt license, we would all rove around in a big band shooting arrows at stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think I hit a deer one time, but it was on the second bounce. It hit a, it hit a rock just right, 
I was shooting straight down a hill and and I think the deer was probably 75 yards away and it hit the ground halfway between the deer and and me and and it glanced off a rock and the side of the arrow hit him flat on the back you know it was uh I cringe to think about that I have such such fond memories of of that time of my life as well but also a great deal of like what was I doing like that was so stupid <laughs> But I, you know, I remember for the longest time, it's like, okay, this is my good arrow. This is the one I'm going to shoot first. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nothing matched. Broadheads were, were a mess. Um, I went hunting one time and, and got down to, you know, my, my best arrow at the time had two blades on the broadhead, but it was a three blade broadhead because one blade had gotten broken <laughs> off and I was like, oh, I'm just going to have to get a little closer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a disaster, but that's really the foundation that people have to build to, to grow and, yeah. and to learn. So when did you first start hunting elk on your own? Oh, I'd say. About what year, I guess is what I'm getting that okay would have been 80 1979 something like that was anybody calling for elk at the time not really uh-uh it wasn't it wasn't a thing yet so did you just hunt them like deer and just try to yeah ambush them or sneak up on yeah them? i was always tracking them running elk that seemed like my thing. <laughs> I'd walk into the head of a draw and I'd hear crash, crash, crash. I'd go down there and see, you know, oh man, there looked like three or four of them. And I'd just get on the trail and, you know, I'd be doing that all day long. And I learned a lot about elk, you know. I learned they, they uh, worked a circuit, you know, and uh, if you followed them long enough, you'd be right back in the same place. You busted them out the first time. Because they're in that spot for a reason. Yeah, there's usually a lead cow that grew up there, knows every rock and stick in that basin, or or that along that route. I think they naturally, from uh, evolving with predators, don't want to leave sent around day after day, you know, in the right. same spot. So they rove, and uh, when you push them, they they just go along that route, I believe, mm -hmm. until you've pushed them real hard. Or, you know, if uh, one's wounded or something, it'll break out of that um, route. So when do you remember calling starting to become part of it? Well, uh, Larry Jones came to Le Grand in uh, like 1982 or something like that, mm -hmm. <laughs> I believe. And... Uh, he packed an auditorium, and the the noise, the elk noise that he would make was fascinating, and and it just caught on like wildfire. Everybody got calls, and and they were they were in you know the thick of it. After that, my dad had a uh, like a piece of copper tubing, <clears throat> looked like a supply line for a toilet or something. And uh, it had a couple twists in it. It was about 18 inches long. And uh, he'd carved a wooden plug in one end and uh, shaved off on an angle and cut a little hole in the top of the pipe. And it, it made a piccolo kind of sound. 
but it went through like several little note changes or mm -hmm. octave changes and uh he thought that was the cat's meow and when i blew mine after i learned how to do it and got the calls from from the you know what larry jones had taught he uh he didn't think that sounded like an elk you know and one time we were way back in there someplace we were sitting on the edge of a a ridge and uh looking into a drainage and uh he said let me show you how this thing works you know and he blew on that thing and nothing happened and uh i said well let me try mine and uh <laughs> i i blew mine and i distinctly remember this there was a bull across the on the other side of the rim and you know down through the basin up on the other side directly across from us probably i don't know three quarters of a mile away went absolutely ballistic and it would run up the ridge and bugle and it would run down the ridge and bugle and uh it was amazing and uh that night that bull came right into camp and bugled and he was convinced that maybe it did work <laughs> <laughs> and calls have changed a lot since 1982 oh yeah yeah and you've you've kept up with it you're still a terrific caller and you use modern equipment now reluctantly um i think that just a your small radiator hose and a and a diaphragm calls plenty you know that's as high tech as i go yeah have you tried one of those uh it, it look it looks like the old you know grunt tube thing um but damien pagano is, is making them with liberty game calls and they're 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 softer rubber compound. They sound pretty good. I might try one of those. Oftentimes, I'll hear a hunter in the woods, and I'll I'll swear it's an elk. Sure. And uh, vice versa. The other way yeah. around. That's even worse. That's the worst. <laughs> That's the worst when you hear something scratchy and creaking around, and it's like that's that's a bad hunter. Yeah. 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 It's happened several times. I get back to camp and say, "What were you doing up in that draw?" I wasn't there. And then it's like, oh, God. <laughs> I was so close. I just didn't want to bother you. Oh, boy. So, yeah. What's the uh, what's the biggest bull you ever killed? Well, um, it's uh, it's listed uh, in, in the Pope and Young uh, traditional book at 333 and a half. But it scored before deductions 347. And mm. five eights, and uh, the three thirty three and a half was uh, second in the in the traditional book at that time in in like two thousand three, and it was one eighth of an inch smaller than a bull killed in Baker County in uh, nineteen forty six, but it only stayed in number two spot for uh, about two years and. Then it got bumped to third and then fourth, and it's probably, I don't know, I quit looking. Yeah. Well, there was a, we kind of got into the golden age of elk here for, for a while, and I feel like we're maybe past that and starting to come down the other hill, but there was sure about a decade where there was a lot of big bulls around, and it was natural that some of them were going to get killed by guys with, with trad bows. Uh, yeah. So tell but, me a little bit about that hunt. Well, uh, it was a family hunt. And, uh, you know, we'd been going up to this one spot since I was a little tiny kid. In fact, 
There's a picture of me in a in a little papoose on the refrigerator here that uh, shows me at two months old uh, in the same spot. Hmm. We're very close to the same spot. But anyway, it was uh, when my mom and dad were alive and my sisters and my kids and wife and we all went up that spot and dad and I were we were uh, bringing the camp in with a stock and the girls were walking and they were probably a mile behind us. And uh, when we got close to camp, I heard at least three bulls bugling and I got all excited and uh, trying to be quiet. And <clears throat> we got the camp kind of squared away and put the horses out and I could hear the women coming up the trail, you know, they were laughing and giggling and hollering and, and so I ran down there and I said, shh, shh, you guys, there's, there's a bunch of bugling elk up here. If you wouldn't mind toning it down a little bit, I'm going to go after them in the morning and I want them to, to stick around, you know. And they said, oh, you can stuff that up there, you know. If we come up here to have a good time, you just have to go somewhere else and find them, you know. They were not cooperative. So... I lowered my expectations, but when I got up in the morning, they were still sounding off, and uh, so I, your family or the elk? Oh, <laughs> 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 I should clarify the elk. The family was soundly sleeping. <laughs> this was way before uh, light, and so I clambered up the hillside uh, on the other side of the of the creek from where they were. Is like right behind camp and across the creek and up in a little basin where the elk were. So I was going to try and get a bead on them first and see how I might get in on this group. And uh, I never could see anything. But they kept on bugling. And it was, it was late in the morning before I really decided I better give up on a sighting of them and just go in there. And I was just a little reluctant, you know. You don't want to blow something that's been going on for a couple of days. Um, so as soon as I crossed the creek, I bumped a cow. And she clattered up the hill right straight towards all the action. And I kind of thought, oh, what do I do now? And I sat there for five minutes and thought, well, I just got to gotta get on it. Got to get up there. And I moved on ahead another 50 yards or 100 yards. I bumped a couple more. And they ran the same direction. And, uh, man. That's always a defeating feeling. Oh, it's so discouraging. Because you <laughs> think that that's it. You'll never hear another yeah. peep. Maybe on the saddle as they're going off into the next drainage, you know, you might hear that bull say, you know, see you later, sucker. Yeah. <laughs> but they kept on bugling. And I bumped a cow one more time. And then I thought, okay, uh wind is uh is changing i'm gonna i'm gonna go out around these things and uh i started up the hill and uh i was walking through an opening and uh i saw a movement and i caught this bull coming straight down the hill at me and and he was nice and so i uh i froze and he got he got up there within about 75 yards of me and he stopped right behind a group of pine trees and uh had my bow to the side no arrows 
and I was thinking, I can't see his head. Maybe I ought to stick an arrow on. And I thought, no, because I'd been watching him, and he'd he'd uh, he'd hold up for a minute and look around, you know, and then he'd lunge ahead, and I didn't want to be halfway through that and have him move. And then I noticed his eyeball through a couple of limbs there, and uh, I realized that I'd made the right decision not to do that because he was he was looking at me. He he moved another like 20 yards, and he looked right at me. And I didn't move, still hands to my side. And I, very obvious, I was a man. You didn't have an arrow loaded or no, nothing? No, no, no. <laughs> no, it happened pretty quick. And uh, I normally don't even go through openings. But I was, I was kind of at a loss here what to do and kind of off my, my game. But... Um, I didn't move while he had an eye on me, which I, I don't, you know, I was really lucky to even see that, but I made the right call. Anyway, he turned around, and as he walked back through that stuff, kind of quartering away, I got an arrow on. And I swung around, you know, to to be more squared off to make a shot. And he, he went behind this fallen pine tree, and it was, it pretty much obscured him completely. And I drew back about halfway, and I was just hoping that he'd keep coming around. And he he came around, and he gave me a wide-open shot at 23 yards, and I finished my draw and got double lung shot on him. And uh, I heard him crash and wipe out a whole bunch of brush. It was on kind of steep ground, and I knew I had him. I, I waited a half hour anyway, and I went down there, and he knocked about half the limbs off a snag that was laying down the hill. Yeah. It was a, it was a pretty awesome experience, you know, especially with the family there. So what are, what are some learning points to take away from that? Um, don't move. You just can't move. They're so, they're, they're just incredible at picking up movement. And, uh, that was fluky. I, should have never seen him again. There must have just been a whole bunch of bulls in there, and uh, that the the herd bull, which was him, would have just been uh, working really hard to keep them out. There must have been a couple of hot cows in there. Yeah, yeah it was very very lucky. But uh, yeah, get your wind right. You know, I've hunted with a lot of people that just are so quick to uh, kind of almost attack, and they're. They're pretty successful. I've never really done things that way. I'm more reserved and uh, want to be more sure. And I'm sure I've blown uh, many, many opportunities. But um, I don't know. That's my style. There's a time and a place to be aggressive, but it's certainly not all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the most popular style right now, especially um, amongst, you know, some of the YouTube hunters and stuff like that, they like a really aggressive style and it makes for, for better video. If you can be aggressive and have a bull that'll match you with that, mm -hmm. um, that's an easy bull to kill and it's going to make for a great film, but man, it is not, if you want to be successful, that cannot be the only trick in your bag. Right. Yeah. So, well, that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. Pretty amazing. 
it, it, <laughs> it's neat to hunt elk out of a camp. And when you're hunting out of a camp, you've got to be reserved. Because if you blow them out, you've got to pack everything up and go to a brand new place. Probably be a whole day's ride. Mm-hmm. You know, you, yeah. you got to really slow it down. Yeah, I'd say uh, 30 to 1, I've blown elk out by being careless. Yeah. By not necessarily making noises. Because, you know, it's pretty well understood that elk make noise too. And they'll go back to grazing if you crack a great big stick you know, within a hundred yards of them and they'll notice it and they'll give, you know, that, that look around. But if they don't hear another one, they'll go back to eating. You know, of course the wind is always sure going to turn you in. But um, the only things that are sneaky around elk are trying to do them harm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sneaky sounds sound differently than just walking around sounds. Right, yeah, you know, if you get the opportunity to to see one, uh, you know, you're close enough to see one, and you've made noise, and then you you stop making noise, they will they will stay on the alert for minutes. You know, they want to see what's what's making that noise, and they want to see an elk probably, mm-hmm. so that they can go back to business. They don't want to see a man or a wolf or something like that. Yeah. And ideally, they'd like to smell another elk because that's, you know, their best source of information. Yeah. Oftentimes, that's a satellite bull. Yeah. And he's, he's uh, you know, he's out there prowling, you know, wants to find that stray cow or, you know, big herd that bull's busy on the other end, the mm-hmm. other side. Tell me about mountain goat hunting. <laughs> yeah, I got me a once-in-a-lifetime tag, and I was bound and determined to get it with my traditional gear. I had two good friends that were anxious to help me. They they really sacrificed quite a bit to try and get me a goat. And, uh, of course, it's a super rugged country to start with, or they wouldn't be there. What does that mean to you? What what does super rugged country look like? I mean, we got people listening to this show in Brazil, so try and break it down for them. Okay, they are um, they they seem to be super unconcerned uh, with with people, and I I would imagine maybe predators in general when they're on steep ground. And it, it is because they know that in 30 seconds they can be in this chute that is uh, getting close to being vertical. And nothing can get in there but a bird. I mean, it's incredible. And they all run right toward that spot where it's just, you know, you, you can't negotiate those, those, that terrain. And a cougar would just, you know, fall to its death, you know, as catty as they are. And so they're they're on very, very steep, steep, rugged stuff. And they, they don't seem to, I've seen them eat grass, but uh, they're always after lichen or some small plant that looks almost like it's growing on the rocks, like 
sometimes they're in a place where you don't see any greenery and they're they're grazing but it's a um, treacherous treacherous ground that they're on and that's why they've evolved i imagine and their their weight is all on their front legs so that they can uh, like maybe turn around on a four inch wide ledge or something like that and they're so at ease with it you see the little the little uh what do you call them kids mm -hmm. they'll be on something that's uh like 90 percent slope and they'll be headbutting each other and trying to knock each other down and it's it just makes your you just your stomach just kind of comes <laughs> through your throat thinking of what they're you know able to what, what they may do they might fall you know and it's one thing with a with a gun you know if you've got a goat on enough of a ledge you know you can shoot him right there and if you get him good and killed he's going to stay right there as long as he doesn't do much kicking around and fall off but with a bow you need him on pretty secure ground to keep him from falling a couple mm -hmm. thousand feet yeah yeah so our uh our game plan was to get me between their shoot and wherever we see them and then try and work on them that way without getting seen yeah yeah and oftentimes i'd be like coming down right straight over the top of them they're laying down underneath a rim and uh, trying not to roll a little rock or something and uh, sometimes it was helpful to have like a wind or something that was creating other noise but they always got to the shoot every time i got a couple shots off but they were moving and you know it was just not good so the very last day well we were in a really good spot um we were working on like four different billies and they would put up with us for about for attempts to get them and then they would be gone clear out and the last day we we had reserved one it might have been the biggest one too to uh, make the run on and uh, i got really close to it i was trying to come down in on the top of him and some hunters walked through the saddle they were elk hunting and bow hunters and uh, blew the goat out just oh. before I was oh. I was just about to start drawing and uh, they they blew it out <clears throat> and so we went to the rifle the last day and uh, we went back out there to that incident I just talked about where the bow hunters uh, blew it out and he was gone that that goat was gone and we didn't have any other options all the goats we'd been watching were hidden and we just kind of went bushwhacking and saw one in a kind of an unusual place on kind of more level ground and i got a shot and got him nice yeah how do you taste good i really liked it. yeah the burger from my mountain goat i don't care for much mm. and it's the toughest burger i've ever ever they tried are to tough eat eat in my life but the steaks and the roasts have been really good mm -hmm. i've got no issue with it a lot better than a domestic billy goat you know yeah some of those well the billy holy smokes they can yeah. stink for you can smell them a half a mile away yeah terrible yeah smell that'll stay with you too mm -hmm. but no they're they're pretty good what's your hunting season gonna look like this year 
Oh, um, I'm feeling really good because I got my my shoulder operation mm-hmm. successfully completed, and I am through the rehabilitation process. And I just started shooting my hunting bow a couple days ago. I'd been for the last uh, oh two months. I've been shooting a real a light bow, like thirty five pound, and I had a match set arrows for it and was honing in on my um form and stuff and then i got my big bow out and uh, i can make a almost a full draw but i'm kind of a not a full draw guy i think my bow is a little bit too too strong but shooting pretty good so i'm feeling really good about that part that's great the last season i had was a pretty pretty dicey because my shoulder hurt so much when I was pulling back. I concentrated more on the pain and what I was doing to my shoulder than where my, my form was at, you know. Do you want to talk about how last season ended? Uh, not very much. <laughs> <laughs> but if you insist, I, uh, the last day of the season, I was in uh, a tree stand and uh, I hadn't seen anything. And he'd been riding this tree for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had a couple cows. and a Like days. A couple spikes. Oh, yes. Like a week. And so I was kind of getting tired of the whole scene, you know, looking at the same little log down there and same little trees. Anyway, uh, I always shoot a couple arrows before I get down out of the tree. Because that that steep shot is a little bit deceiving. I always shoot a little high and a little left. And so I'm always working on that. So I had me a rotten chunk that was sitting there where I figured I'd be most apt to to get a shot. Kind of like with the trails and stuff that we're going through there. And uh, it was probably legally not hunting hours. And it was the last day. And so I shot two arrows, my two practice arrows, and uh, maybe one of them wasn't all that good of a shot. So I thought, what the hell? We're done. We're done hunting, right? So I shot each and every one of my arrows at that chunk. Made some pretty good shots, too. And I started to uh, lower my bow, and I heard crack shuffle clunk (laughs) and I froze and I watched this monster bull walk up to my little pile of arrows and sniff them all up and down look around a little bit take a few licks on the ground and walked off very slowly Mm. and it was uh, it was a real it was a real nice bull. Nicest bull I'd seen all year. That's how it ended. That's a bummer. Yeah. That's a real that's a real bummer. I love that story because it's so heartbreaking, but it's something that could happen to anybody, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's getting dark, it's the last day, hasn't been going well. It's easy to quit. Yeah. But yeah, that's definitely insult to injury. I, I did have a last day scenario that was very interesting. There was a bunch of llama hunters. Um, it was in that same tree. 
there was a bunch of llama hunters that kind of started moving in on me because one of them, there was like nine of them, nine guys. Gross. And they had, all of them had a llama or Ugh. two. And uh, they were they were camped quite a long ways away, but one of them had shot a cow and it ran up into the kind of my neck of the woods there. And they uh, they came up one day and they were uh, hollering and trying to, you know, get organized. Apparently one of them had laid his bow down on one of their rests when they were packing the meat and realized they'd left it somewhere and they were all pouring around on the hillside hollering about where where they thought it was or where they'd walked or hadn't. And uh, I was sitting there listening to all this stuff, you know, kind of dejected because who's going to, what, what elk's going to walk under my tree when that's going on? But I didn't want to show myself. Yeah. So I just had to sit there and suck it up. Well, they came the next day, and I think that was the last day. And these guys bugle about every two minutes. And so the the woods was just uh, full of man bugles, starting from about 3 o'clock till about an hour before dark. And uh, I heard them. They must be afraid of the dark or something because they, they all were way towards camp before it got dark, you know, before it even got dusk. And uh, I just was kind of disgusted by the whole thing. And uh, when I finally heard the last one going over the hill, I, I bugled. And uh, there was three bulls within three or 400 yards of my tree that answered me. And uh, so I got them all worked up. This one of them in a, in a swamp that was uh, only like 100 yards away from me was just going nuts. Hmm. And it was getting darker and darker. And uh, I, I, I thought I got to change this up somehow. You know, I got to brought another 10, 15 minutes of shooting light. And I made a cow call. And one of them just kind of ran out of nowhere and uh, ran right up underneath my tree. And I was literally shooting straight down on him. And uh, I missed. I shot in front of him. And he went, ran out around my little clearing where I was, uh, had my tree stand where I figured I'd be doing my shooting. He had actually come in from behind. And... Uh, I waited about five minutes and Cal called again. A sucker came right back in the same spot. And I adjusted for my shot this time and I hit him. Hmm. And uh, he died right there about 50 yards away. <laughs> the last day of the season. That's awesome. <laughs> you got to tough it out. Yeah. You're the, you, you've, you've, you know, made it that far. Yeah. Just finish I, it out. Yeah. It seems like tenacity is the name of the game for, a traditional bow hunter. Well, know? when it comes to tenacity, you have a reputation that's well-earned of being, you know, the hardest worker that anybody's ever met. Certainly the hardest worker that I've ever met. And I think you, you're kind of a legend for it. So what, what are some of your ethos around, around labor and, and on work? And then how does that kind of inform how you operate as a hunter? Well, um, 
I hunt by myself a lot because no one really wants to go to the trouble that I go to. And uh, I think about that sometimes, like, why am I... I'll get in a spot, you know, like in the middle of the night, on a trail somewhere, maybe have some trouble. I lost some mules one time that bucked off over a cliff because I was in the middle of the night on a strange trail and got on a game trail on a switchback and got into some rims before I even knew where I was. And I think about, you know, what do I do these things for? seems like everything I do is difficult. And so it's, uh, it's something in my psychological makeup. Maybe the way I was raised, it might have something to do with my, my father and wanting to please him, to be noticed. But I'm not sure. But I, knew, I do know that uh, everything I do has a degree of difficulty that would probably exceed most people's interest, at least. So that's why I do bow hunting, I think. You know, I, I like that methodical, routine kind of way of doing things. And uh, I'm kind of a sentimental guy, kind of a miser too. Like if I lose a piece of gear while I'm hunting, I'll find that piece of gear. I'll go back numerous times to try and line up the trees and the memory of of where I was when I think I lost that thing and usually can find my thing, you know, like somebody give me a arm guard or something mm-hmm. and I'll sit down and have a snack or something and get up and leave it and it'll be half hour before I realize I don't have that thing and I'll... I'll go back. If it takes me the rest of the day, I'll, I'll find that damn thing, you know. That's just the way I am. A lot of people just go, oh, I'll just buy another one, you know. And so I'm not saying that's good or or what, but uh, it's just the way I am. And I think tenacity is uh, probably the best word to describe my being, yeah, my, my ethics. Yeah, I'd agree. I think we should all... Uh... Strive to be more tenacious. Yeah, I suppose it depends on what what you're striving at. But uh, does it? Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> I can think of things that you might be tenacious about that would be illegal. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we gotta gotta keep it legal. That's for sure. And uh, yeah, you had a career as a custom home builder. Mm-hmm. You're a painter. Yeah. Um, not a house painter. Not a house painter. Painting painter. Yeah, painting painter. Yeah. A drawing drawer. Yeah, all that. Yeah. Uh, all, all art forms that I have ever tried. I felt like I'd love to do that for the rest of my life. Yeah. Where can people check out more about you and and the art that you do? And well, I've got a kind of a not very well uh, updated website i think it says kirkscovelinart.com or something like that you could see a a gallery of prints and paintings but uh, it's kind of a, just a sample mm-hmm. and it has my phone number i think <laughs> <laughs> i'm not very tenacious at marketing i'll have you know yeah. i guess you know that yeah it gives me great joy yeah. to to be a bow hunter and uh and and walk around through the woods and uh, 
not that I forget that I'm hunting, but I'm I'm looking for my next shot. I love to shoot my bow so much that uh, I'm looking for a log and a technical shot, and uh, I live I live for that. And occasionally, I'll make up for noise that I made, like the bow slapping on something or the arrow bouncing off something and it makes a noise and I'll compensate for that by being extra quiet and and uh, observant. I've actually killed an elk uh, that walked between me and the stump I was shooting at. Hmm. That's a bad choice for that elk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah when I'm all tuned up. <laughs> yeah. I've got a steel target up on on the hill here next to my house that i shoot all the time uh-huh. all the time and i pretty good at knowing the wind and everything and i was dumping um duck carcasses off there from all the ducks that i was shooting and I woke up one morning and there was a coyote that thought he could run out there and mm. grab a duck carcass at the base of my steel target like uh-uh. No, sir. I'm pretty good at that one. <laughs> <laughs> I got that yardage down. Yep. Well, I, I kind of feel sorry for gun hunters when I'm um, walking through the woods shooting at anything yeah. and everything because I make, who knows, maybe 50 shots a day while I'm hunting. It's a fun thing about a trad bow, for sure. Yeah. A compound guy can't do that at all. I mean, those arrows are 10 bucks a piece or whatever. And they'll explode. And, yeah. And, yeah, you uh, probably can't even find them no matter what you hit. Yeah. I can just shoot them. I've gone the whole season and never even broke an arrow or lost an arrow. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm so proud of that. And, and I enjoy it so much. I just feel sorry for the gun hunters. They can't do that. <laughs> can you imagine somebody shooting 50 shots? That'd be funny. <laughs> like if you're just out there shooting rocks all day long. <laughs> yeah. Damn, I haven't seen a thing all day. How about you? No, I haven't either. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I will shoot a coyote or a grouse or something like that when I'm out gun hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's always worked out in my favor as far as I know. You know, there's been a couple times that I've been elk hunting, shot a coyote that, you know, I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't shoot. But like it's a coyote, it's a rule. I'm just going to go ahead and shoot him. And uh, then a little posse elk will run out on the hillside. And like, oh, I wouldn't have known about them if I hadn't shot that coyote a second mm-hmm. ago. I'm waiting for them to uh, make wolves legal to shoot. Mm-hmm. In Oregon? Yeah. They're I've, really uh, loosening those regulations in Idaho right now. Yeah. Making it all year. No no more limits. It It's fun. I, Me and uh, my, my son Lars, we were... Uh, doing some setup calling and stuff and uh we called in a pack of wolves and they actually surrounded us hmm. and uh they thought they were going to get jump on an elk and the wind changed or something and they ran off but uh they were within range hmm. that would be really awesome to call in a wolf and shoot it with an arrow yeah or anything yeah it would be awesome with an arrow but yeah you know these wolves are causing quite a few problems i think if it's legal and you get an opportunity, I think we probably need to be shooting them. Yeah, I don't think they report the numbers that there are actually out there. Well, how could you know? I mean, how, they're one of the hardest critters out there to hunt. How could you even know how many of them there are? Survey them and all this tight timber and big canyons and stuff. It's an impossible task. 
I have uh, camped in places where I can hear three different bunches. Yeah. Distinctly. Yeah. yeah. Pretty wild. Well, sir, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your stories. And, uh, and I appreciate your mentorship in hunting. I learn a lot from you. Every time we talk about it, every time we hunt together, I learn a lot. And I, you. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've taught me a lot. Well, thank you. Thank you. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.